how did you like come up with the idea of doing a bunch of things in lawsuits? Um, you know, and I'm, I'm assuming like your background is in within law. Yeah, I'm an attorney. Yeah, I figured and, as much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, when you get to that question, basically, uh, it, I, I stumbled upon it, you know, truly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just ran with it after that. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around? and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to noseyourbourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. And they're off for another Gift 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 000 from their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Bringing to you the best stories from icons in the bourbon industry, it's Bourbon Pursuit. Now here are your hosts, Ryan and Kenny. Welcome back to another episode of the Bourbon Pursuit podcast. Uh, my name is Kenny, and usually I have Ryan here with me, but today Ryan is not going to be able to make it. Uh, as everybody kind of knows, he had his twins born uh, just a few weeks ago. So he is in and out of the NICU, taking care of that, taking care of his wife, uh, most of us, we've all been there before, so we know uh, the the trials and tribulations that go into having a newborn and the kind of time that's going to be taking. So don't be surprised if I'm just going to be doing it solo for, for a little while coming up. But, you know, this is really kind of cool. This this past week, I sent out a tweet because I, uh, I, I went to the liquor store and I said, you know, I'm just going to get a bottle of bourbon for the office because uh, a few guys have bottles and I'm always chiefing off of them. And I was like, well, I need to just go get a bottle for the office. 
And so I, I sent out a, a tweet and a picture and I said, well, I'm going to go ahead and get this and I'm going to crack this open. And I actually bought a bottle of the old granddad uh, bottled in bond. So it's a hundred proof bourbon. And I got it because it was only $16. And I figured at that price, you know, people were, if they were drinking it, it's not going to kill me. So, uh, and surprisingly, I was very, very impressed with it for a $16 bottle of bourbon. And uh, uh, I had a $75 bottle of bourbon that night. And uh, I don't think it really compared to it. So if you've got a particular office bourbon and uh, you want to share yours, uh, just go ahead and hit us up on Twitter. We'll definitely retweet you and uh, hopefully get you some more followers there as well. But today, let's go ahead and introduce our guests and get this rolling. So today, we have Brian Harrop of the acclaimed Sippin' Corn blog. So today, uh, let's welcome Brian to the show. Brian, how's it going? Great, Kenny. Thanks for having me. So do you have a particular office bourbon that you use? Well, right now, I've got a Four Roses single barrel, uh, but I've also got three unopened that I'm, I'm waiting. I'm trying to schedule a, a tasting with some clients, blind tasting, and take them through that. But the open one right now is Four Roses Single Barrel. I'd, I'd say uh, I wish I could be one of your clients, but you're an attorney. I don't know if I want to be one of your clients. Well, that's the thing about attorneys. <laughs> you, you love to know us, but not you don't want to know us too well. <laughs> exactly. So I guess let's, you know, let's talk about your history and your past, right? Before we get into uh, the blog and some of that stuff, like give us, give us your bourbon story. Well, my, my bourbon story, and at least as far as getting into the blog goes, I, I was researching a totally different issue. I don't even remember now what the issue was, but I came across a case from the late 1800s involving LeBron and Graham, James Pepper, and the, it's the old Oscar Pepper distillery story. And I, I had been on the Woodford tour. I had seen the limestone buildings and all those sorts of things, heard what they said about Oscar Pepper. But here it was all in the case. And it wasn't exactly what the tour guides tell you. And uh, particularly, James Pepper really fascinated me. And, and after reading that case, I, I poked around and found that distillers back in the 1800s loved to sue each other. Uh, E.H. Taylor, Colonel Taylor, was suing Stagg back and forth. And uh, he was suing Marion Taylor, who is, who's known very well in Louisville. And uh, they, they're all suing each other, basically. And, it's you know, a they're, continuous uh, cycle, right? It's a continuous cycle. And then, you know, I had obviously heard uh, in current times, you know, we've, we've more recent times anyhow, we've, we've got the Red Wax case, and a lot of people know about that. Uh, we know about uh, the, the KDA and Sazerac not necessarily getting along. We know that there's been a Woodford Reserve and Barton 1792 case. So it's, it's something that continues to happen, and it, in a lot of ways it's come full circle and has really fascinated me. So I decided that that was my, would be the launching point for my blog. Well, great. So that's that's a great for your blog, I guess. How did you get in? Is that kind of the entrance into the bourbon world as well? Or have you just, I mean, I know you're here from in Louisville and Kentucky. So, I mean, just did you just grow up around here and just always have a knack for bourbon or, or kind of just have that kind of roll in? Well, I, I didn't grow up here. And my, my first memory of, of bourbon is sort of the, the cheap Jim Beam white label in Coke. And and I remember shivering. I still remember remember shivering. <laughs> And then when, when you had money, Makers was the bourbon that you would buy. And it, it stayed that way for a, for a long, long time. Um, but it, it's definitely a, a progression where you, you move from the, the college bourbon 
And then you start drinking it on ice and then you start drinking it neat and you start really appreciating the flavors and the character of the different bourbon and you just become infatuated with it. I mean, it's, it's such a, a rich drink and then you learn about the history of it and it, it makes it all the better. Well, that's awesome. So I guess the one good thing that I, that I really love about your blog and I, I always anticipate getting those tweets that, that come out and you have something really cool is that I think the, the really awesome facet of your blog is that, you know, we, we talk about the history and what, uh, how, um, the bourbon history in itself has so much to do with um, the way that people really look at it and how they admire it. And I think what you really bring is is a, such an interesting angle to how everybody gets a, an, a look into the past. So today we can go and we look on the shelves and we see uh, seven different versions of the word Taylor out there. And we see all these different things, but there's a there's a huge history of why all those things come from different places, um, the, the origins of why all that happened as well. So I guess, you know, you kind of started, you said you kind of stumbled upon this. Now do you sit back there and you, you start going through archives of Lexus Nexus or something like that to go and search for the words of E.H. Taylor or something like that? Absolutely. After a few months uh, into this and, and writing the first few posts, I realized that there really was a rich history of, of lawsuits there. And, and I can find them, you can find them online uh, on, through free searches and you can find them through paid searches um, but you just start searching for for bourbon or distiller, and and you can find all of these cases. Uh, the, the origin story of Ezra Brooks was was one that I really found interesting because I you see on the bottles now of Ezra Brooks that they they talk about having um, all all sorts of history. Uh, they talk about having a history of not just their bourbon, but master distillers going back generations. And you find out that there's a lawsuit from the late 50s that has the entire origin story of Ezra Brooks, and it's a brand created out of thin air in 1957. So there, there is no history, true history to Ezra Brooks, despite what the labels say. So that's been another interesting uh, point that, I, that I've learned here is it, there is a lot of, of puffing and in, in, in the marketing that goes on with bourbon labels. And I think what people are finally latching on to is that honesty is important and truth is important and people don't want to feel duped by marketers. So and I, I guess, the, as, as you say, there's go for it. Keep going. Go ahead. Well, just, just there's, there's so many bourbons out there. And every bourbon says it's distilled by its own distillery. I mean, even with Buffalo Trace, if you look at Elmer T. Lee, it's distilled by the Elmer T. Lee distillery. Well, that's just on paper. And, and that's fine. Uh, that's, that's sort of one level of labels that I think can be misleading, but that's fine because it's a, it's an assumed name of, of Buffalo Trace. That's fine. But then you get something, then you get other labels that, that uh, I don't think <laughs> they, they go a, a few steps further than that. Let's say, yeah, that's a kind of good way to and put be, it, right? So I guess what the you right. brought and up, people Ezra, are getting tired of that. Yeah, yeah, and I, I totally agree because we we've talked about the. I think there's one great distillery out there, and everybody kind of knows Four Roses. They're very transparent in a lot of the stuff that they do by putting recipes out there and warehouses and labels, and I think that's what more or less people are starting to really look for as as educated consumers. I think that's right. And that's, you, you nailed the, the perfect example there, particularly with the 
single barrel that tells you the the warehouse and if if you know how to decipher the numbers at the very bottom label on a single barrel bottle you know which directional side of the warehouse it's in and you know which rick it's on and how deep in the row it is i mean it's it's great transparency now if i remember correctly you have something on your blog that kind of talks about all that right I do. I, I, uh, I confirmed with Four Roses and then published how to read the single barrel label. So that's, that's on there. So there you go. So everybody, if you really want to know your stuff in Four Roses, go ahead and start studying up on that. So back to the Ezra Brooks thing, um, you know, there was a, there, you had another um, article on your blog called Copycat Whiskey and how there that's was right. sort of a thing with Jack Daniels. Kind of talk about that a little bit. Sure. Well, the reason, the whole reason that Ezra Brooks even came along in 1957 because was because they wanted to copy the success of Jack Daniels. So there was a guy named Frank Silverman who started sourcing whiskey, and he had it bottled at the Hoffman Distillery, which in the in the 90s gained gained a lot of fame because that's where Julian Van Winkle bottled the the first sourced Pappy Van Winkle. It's in Lawrenceburg. And so in 1957, Frank Silverman launched a brand new brand with sourced whiskey. He had it in a square bottle. He had it with a black and white wraparound label. It was 90 proof, just like Jack Daniels. So the bottle looked the same. The proof was the same. They had similar pictures on the label of of an old small town distillery. Uh, They used kitschy country language. Uh, Jack Daniels at the time said rare old sipping whiskey and Ezra Brooks said real sipping whiskey. Both were uh, charcoal filtered. So both said that on the label. They both had the same sort of, uh, of white neck piece higher on the neck of the bottle. And they both advertised that it was in short supply, which is, you know, we're coming full circle again today with a lot of distilleries saying that they're, they're short in supply. But there was a short supply of, of Jack Daniels in, in 1957, and Frank Silverman wanted to take advantage of that. So he came out with something that looked practically identical to Jack Daniels. And he got, and he got sued by Brown Foreman, which had just bought Jack Daniels, and of course didn't take too kindly to a new upstart trying to, uh, to take its business. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's pretty funny because, yeah, you, you kind of talked about that, and you also talked about in your article about how when Brown Foreman actually bought Jack Daniels, uh, there was an influx in some capital, and they ended up having a 900% increase in sales. Uh, right. That's like from the 1950s. Yeah, it was just phenomenal. I mean, that that's when Jack Daniels as, as a brand really took off. And it might be the first modern-day example of what marketing can do to a brand. And then we had a really long dry spell of no one really duplicating that. And now with the with the bourbon boom that's really took off, I think I think historically we'll look back probably to Brown Foreman opening Woodford Reserve in '96 as is probably the starting time for this. But really, within the last ten years, it's really taken off, and we've got the same sort of marketing efforts now that Brown Foreman undertook in, in the late fifties to really launch Jack Daniels as a national and, and international brand. So I guess there's, there's a few names that, that always come up, right? When I, when I look at your blog and it's, it's always like Taylor, Pepper, 
Um, and, you know, sometimes you see KDA everywhere. So I guess who do you think is the most uh, profound name in the legal world of, of with bourbon that you, you constantly run across? It's definitely Colonel Taylor. Um, he has, out of the cases that I've found, he has by far the most cases. I, I've written on probably three or four of them, and, and some also involve Pepper, who was really, in a lot of senses, his protege. But uh, be- between the two of them especially, they have by far the, the most lawsuits. Um, you, and you end up seeing a lot of names that are still around today. Uh, Colonel Taylor was partners with George T. Stagg for quite some time uh, with, at the uh, OFC and Carlisle Distilleries, and they had their lawsuits. And uh, Colonel Taylor was also a huge proponent, thankfully, for the Bottle and Bond Act. He, he got that pushed through. Uh, with the help of a politician whose last name, incidentally, was Carlisle, and the second distillery that that uh, Colonel T- Taylor and George Stagg opened up was called the Carlisle Distillery. Uh, but so you have a lot of litigation with Colonel Taylor, uh, but you also have, I think, what can be characterized as the right reasons for his litigation because he was suing rectifiers like Marion Taylor in Louisville. And he was uh, also suing other rectifiers, and he was really pushing for for protections for straight bourbon whiskey. So I guess let's let's dig a little bit further into that. So talk a little bit about uh, you know what he did in regards to the Bottle and Bond Act and why that was such a uh, a thing to to kind of push through. You know, if, if there's any sort of like real history that you just can't find on a on a label that says you know it has to be made in a certain warehouse and all this other kind of stuff. Sure, he he was the proponent for the Bottle and Bond Act, and it's it's 1897 was when it was finally passed. And I think a lot of people by now have are, are learning essentially what it means, and it's it essentially means that it's had all been distilled. In, uh, in a single season, which at a single distillery, it's going to be at least four years old, and it's 100 proof. And they've, they've tinkered with what the legal definition of, of bottled and bond means over time, and it was, it was mostly deregulated in the 1980s with, with a big regulation class. But it's, it's, and it's still essentially a guarantee of what's in the bottle, a guarantee of quality. Um, I've had some bond bourbons that, that I wouldn't call quite. It's a guarantee of what's in the bottle. And that Colonel Taylor was going after in the 1800s. He wanted to know what was in the bottle, and he accomplished that. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. 
Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus Magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus Magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. So let's talk a little bit about the lawsuit with Stag because those are two pretty prominent names that everybody kind of knows that uh, maybe they don't know the history behind it, but they know that uh, when they see even a bottle of Stag Jr. in the shelves or uh, during the rush of October when they see the the George T. sitting out there. Now, kind of talk about the history between Stag and Colonel Taylor and what that really meant for their brands and uh, how they broke apart and all that sort of stuff. Well, Colonel Tamps, uh in his business life really experienced a, a roller coaster ride. He he was also a politician. He was he was mayor of Frankfurt, and he started life as a as a banker. And so he he really came into the business with a lot of connections and with a lot of know how about financing. And he had worked with some distilleries, and and I. I understand, got the bug. And so he bought the distillery that's now Buffalo Trace. And as part of his roller coaster ride through the bourbon industry, he went broke a couple of times. And George T. Tag became the owner of the OFC in, uh, in 1877, I believe it was. And that's around the time that Colonel Taylor was trying to form other partnerships, so he became a partner in something called Gaines Berry and Company, and that's a company that actually owned the Oscar Pepper Distillery for a little while, and it's the company that eventually acquired the Old Crow brand and built their own distillery on Glens Creek, just uh, just downriver from the Oscar Pepper Distillery. But, but back to Stag and Taylor, they, they seemingly got along for a couple of decades uh, after Stag bailed him out. And the lawsuits that I've read show that Stag was the majority owner of the new company that was still called E.H. Uh, Taylor Jr. Distillery. And Taylor was just a 1% owner of it, but he was definitely the face of the company there was no George T. Stagg brand at the time. You know, that's something that's that's a lot more recent. So the brand that they produced was the E.H. Taylor Jr. brand. And it's the they used the script signature that's still used today, and that's uh, in this time frame. That's what guaranteed what's in the bottle. There there were not as many trademark protections as there are now. And it was really the signature that that could show you what you've got in the bottle. And that's why they used it. So but, you actually have another article about Colonel Taylor's uh, signature. So is that, there is there something more to that that's uh, the origin of it? Well, the, the, the more to that story actually involves Stag too, because after they broke apart, they, they decided to part ways. And it uh, was not necessarily an agreeable parting, but 
it wasn't uh, litigious either. And as part of the deal, um, Taylor got the J.S. Taylor Distillery, which he then, which was run by one of his sons, which has now become the old Taylor Distillery that uh, Marion Barnes is is renovating and will be distilling it by the end of the year. And by the way, I loved your interview of, of Marion. She's she's great, and I'm I'm glad you had her on the the podcast. Yeah, top notch gal. She's really oh cool. my, it's fantastic. So when they uh, when they parted ways, when Taylor and Stag parted ways. Stag was investing more money into the OFC and the Carlisle and actually had to shut down for 18 months. And that uh, gave Taylor a head start. He had stock at the J.S. Taylor distillery already. And so he continued to produce the old Taylor brand with his name on it. Once Stag got up and running after 18 months had gone by, he too started bottling bourbon called E.H. Taylor Jr. Bourbon and that used the same script. And that's when they got into their, their, their lawsuit because Stag was using the, the same name that they had produced while Taylor uh, was, a, was a 1% or one share owner of the Carlisle and the OFC. And uh, Taylor ended up winning that lawsuit because the only thing that Stag had trademarked as owner of the company was the names OFC and the Carlisle. Man, I so, tell you what, there's, there's Taylor just got himself in too much shit. The way that sounds, right? Oh, he did. I mean, he, some, <laughs> some of it he found himself. Some of it he tripped into. Some of it he went out of his way to get into. But he loved lawsuits. As what to say, and there's even another one. You've got another article called "Kentucky wasn't big enough for two Colonel Taylors," and so. That's true. Yeah, so talk about that one a little bit too. Sure, a, a lot of people in Louisville will know the name Marion Taylor. We've got the Marion E. Taylor building downtown. Uh, people uh, sometimes have heard on Whiskey Row of the Wright and Taylor uh, company, and they were they were mostly rectifiers. However, they ended up owning the old Charter brand, and they ended up owning a distillery, and they ended up being able to produce true straight bourbon whiskey. But for a long time, they were rectifiers. And Marion Taylor was also a colonel. So you've got two Colonel Taylors. And they locked horns because Marion Taylor was selling a rectified bourbon called Old Taylor at the same time that Colonel Taylor in Frankfurt was selling his Old Taylor brand. And this was really a, a preview to the, uh, the Bottled and Bond Act and the Pure, Few, uh, Pure Food and Drug Act uh, that came in later in 1906. And it was more of Colonel E.H. Taylor's efforts to, uh, to really gut every rectifier he could find. I mean, if, if he had one goal in life other than making fantastic straight bourbon whiskey, it was to protect what he was making. And, and you got to admire him for that. And so he would go after any rectifier, but particularly one that was using the same name he was using. And again, this is a time period when there weren't really trademark protections and you, you really had to, to find different ways to go about it. And, and E.H. Taylor's way to go about it was to be able to distinguish between straight bourbon whiskey and what he called imitation whiskey. And that's what he did in the lawsuit against Marion Taylor. And he won, and after he won, I've got a couple of, of images on that post. 
uh, he took out full-page ads in the Wine and Spirits Journal to basically tout his victory and to trash Marion Taylor. <laughs> well, I, I guess that's one way to do it, right? Well, that's right. I mean, and, and he it was the main uh, journal of the time for spirits, and he was uh, definitely taking a victory lap when he started taking out full-page ads. But he, he he never let go. It's like the pit bull who just clamps down and doesn't let go. I mean, did you see a lot of a lot of things in regards of I don't want to say copyright or brand infringements or something like that being uh, a big uh, kind of I guess you can say sticking point in a lot of these cases. Well, it it definitely was a big um, a big sticking point in these cases, and it's it's really one reason that I. I like researching this area of the law because it's American law really grew up because of the bourbon industry. Um, If you look back to how trademark law developed in the United States, all of the cases pretty much deal with bourbon. Uh, You've got, um, for example, I've got a post on a Churchill Downs distillery case. I was going to ask you about um, that. that, Churchill Downs Distilling versus Churchill Downs Incorporated. Uh, that's right. So you've got a you've got a guy in Nelson County who starts a distillery, and he calls it Churchill Down Dis- Churchill Downs Distillery. And so he gets sued by the the Churchill Downs that we all know, and he was clearly trying to use the name Churchill Downs to sell bourbon, and otherwise he was just a, a brand new distiller with no track record, and and maybe or maybe so or maybe not uh, an actual decent bourbon to begin with. But he was using their name, and he had a, a P.O. box in Louisville, and so that let him on his label, put Louisville on his label, even though he was in Nelson County. And so at the time, trademark law would only protect a, a trade name in the same line of business that you were operating in. So he argued that he's not that he doesn't have anything to do with thoroughbred racing so he can use the name Churchill Downs however he wants. And this was a case that that extended trade name protection broader than the area where you already did business. So it's it's a real significant case in the development of, of American law. So how did and that you one, see that yeah how did that one actually end up? I'm, I'm assuming so that, that ends it's up not with, around anymore. Yeah, right. It's not around anymore and it wasn't around after that case because Churchill Downs, the uh, thoroughbred racetrack won the case. And he had to change his name, and there's no there's no record as to what he changed his name to, or whether he became a successful distiller uh, with a different name. The case just sort of ends, and that's all we can ever know about it, uh, as far as the lawsuit history goes. But that that name is gone, and the law got extended from what it had what it used to be. Yeah, even if you're and you see that all over with with other bourbon cases. Yeah, I was about to say it'd be really hard to throw some guesses at it, considering it's from Nelson County. So I can't even think of any more names or brands that would be around there. Right. Yeah, but there would definitely have been a few during that time frame. Yeah. So did you? I mean, I guess the name Stitzelweller always kinds of comes up, and that's the the everybody can throw the name Stitzelweller, and everybody goes crazy over it. Is there any kind of uh, history or cases that that involved them? You know, I didn't find any at all involving Stitzel Weller, um, and I, I was really surprised about that. I, I found some history about it, so we've got some um, some lawsuits that mention it more in passing than anything else uh, as far as Stitzel and, and Weller 
combining forces and moving out of downtown to, to Shively. But there's none of the interesting cases that we have, like with the H. Taylor, or James Pepper, or, or Churchill Downs or anything else. They, they seem to have uh, either gone unnoticed as far as litigation goes or stayed uh, above the fray. Yeah, I guess the there, same with, there are some happy marriages then in the bourbon world. Uh, absolutely. And there's there's quite a few brands that don't show up. I mean, there's there's really nothing uh, in the litigation in any uh, lawsuits that I've found about Four Roses either um, or really Heaven Hill. Um, but uh, you've got some some repeat players. Now, would you say that a, a lot of these are from, uh, you know, I guess from fairly old? I mean, are there any things that's that's relatively recent in regards to? Uh, laws and cases uh, for anything that's really happening. I know uh, we all we all kind of hear some of the stuff in the news that uh, there's a few different labels out there that then put handmade and it's really not handmade and it all comes from this factory in Indiana. But um, anything else that that kind of like strikes your your interest? Uh, anything that's that's relatively recent? Yeah, the probably the most recent case was was about ten years ago, and it was uh, Woodford Reserve versus Barton. 1792, uh, and I actually just uh, published a post on on that case, and it it takes us back to uh, 2003, which is when 1792 launched. And originally, it wasn't called Ridgemont Reserve; it was called Ridgewood Reserve. And they got sued by Brown Foreman because of the bottle shape and because of the the label design. And because of the name, if you can believe it, I don't know that I buy this part of it, but Ridgewood sounded too much like Woodford, I guess just reversed. And that case only lasted about six months, which is insanely fast in my world. Mm-hmm. But Woodford ended up winning. And uh, and that's why the name uh, became, and they've dropped the name now, now it's just 1792, but that's why the name became Ridgemont Reserve instead of Ridgewood Reserve. Um, the result of that case isn't necessarily, to me, the important part of the case, though. What was really uh, ex- exciting for me to read in this case was the the marketing angle that Barton Brands was was taking as far as, as launching a new premium brand. You know, they had made very old Barton for a while. And that was a six-year-old bourbon, and they wanted to release an eight-year-old bourbon, and they wanted to call it Super Premium. And they, the marketers realized they needed a story to go along with that. So they, uh, overnight, they named their still the legendary Ridgewood Still. Uh, Ridgewood, remember, is a name that they just picked out of thin air. But they made this marketing story that they had this legendary still that had been churning out fantastic bourbon for decades and decades and decades. And they wanted to tie it to their distillery and to their still. So that's why they called it Ridgewood Reserve. And the, the uh, uh, Brown Foreman was also able to find documents from the marketers that showed that they were trying to make everything look like Woodford Reserve. They wanted the Woodford feel is, the, is what they had in their own documents. So they came in, they, they saw the success that Foreman had had with Woodford Reserve since 96, and they wanted to duplicate that, and they wanted to tie it to, they wanted to tie it to their own distillery. So they made up this name. And I thought that was fascinating. 
Brian, I'll tell you and what. If, if, if there is ever a time that they would get into like a bourbon bourbon trivia game, I, I definitely want to be on your team because I don't want to go against you. <laughs> it's it's fun. I tell you, I've learned learned so much, and um, it's I, I like knowing this, and and I like being able to call BS when when I need to. On the other hand, I don't want to get too far into it. I just sometimes I just want to enjoy my bourbon. Yeah, I'm surprised that a bunch of distillers haven't reached out to you already and asked you to come in and be a tour guide on the weekends for some extra cash or something like that. <laughs> well, if I get bourbon with that, I might do it too. <laughs> there you go. You heard it first. So, you know, I'm not going to grill you anymore on, on, on your history and all this other kind of stuff. You know, a lot of things you also do on the blog are uh, reviews of bourbon. So I'll, we're reaching the top of the hour. So just give me like your favorite, like, uh, you know, two or three that you've reviewed and, in in, you know, lately to, to kind of give everybody kind of a taste of, of what you think are, are some of the best best ones out there. Well, sure. I, I I try to run the gamut. I've had some some bottom shelf reviews, and I, I've tried to go to the top of the shelf. And one of my most recent reviews was of a 22 year old weeded Willet, and it was fantastic. Um, the, the problem is is that Willet's charging a lot of money now for its for anything that you can buy in the gift shop. Look. Yeah, for for anybody that doesn't know that, that twenty struggle. yeah that 22 year is a 315 dollar retail. But the one thing you do yeah, get out of it, it is it's a barrel proof bourbon. It's a barrel proof bourbon, so it's you know it's high one thirties, and another one I had was low one forties, um, and it's fantastic. And for the first time ever in a bourbon, I tasted Tootsie Roll. Uh, a lot of times you get cocoa or dark dark chocolate or something like that, but this was Tootsie Roll, and it was so fantastic. Uh, but I, I really struggle with what's happened in in price. So I I don't know that I want to get into a habit of of that sort of high end bourbons. Uh, when, um, when the market's hot, you gotta you gotta strike it right. So it's well, they're, true they're, enough. They're, they're definitely doing it, and I don't I I sure don't blame them for that. But it, as far as favorites and and everyday drinkers go, um, I love Elmer T. Lee, uh, and and that's just always fantastic. And I'm sad that we hardly can't find it anymore. Um, but like my office bourbon, the Four Roses single barrel, that's that's probably my go-to, and that's the the bourbon that I'll serve when people come over. Uh, I, I love it. I love it neat. And the other nice thing about it is people who want cocktails, uh, the Four Roses single barrel really really shines through uh, with its rye and with its fruitiness, and so it, it goes great in cocktails. That's fantastic. Well, uh, like I said, we, we went back and forth on Twitter. You know, I've I've got a few of those twenty two C barrels as well, and we got We got to get together and see if we can absolutely see if we can really put a a head to head competition against all these. Because honestly, I tried the C sixteen and the C eighteen together, and I I couldn't even tell a difference. So, oh wow! Yeah, no yeah, okay. Maybe that's just me and my my immature palate, but you know, I, I, I don't I don't taste Tootsie Rolls. I I taste bourbon when I drink bourbon. So, yeah. <laughs> it's hard Fair for me. To, it's hard Fair for enough. me to like be creative and like the stuff that I, I I taste when I'm actually drinking it and stuff. I'm just like, oh yeah, this one's good. Nah, this one's all right. That's the kind of way I kind of go about it. So. But good deal. Uh, so Brian yeah, it looks like, like bourbon when you ask the color smells like bourbon. I know exactly. So if anybody wants to get a hold of you or they want to read more about what you do, uh, where can they find you? Um, I've got a Google blog, so it's sippincorn.blogspot. So that's where you can find all of my posts. And I'm on Twitter uh, at sippincorn, S-I-P-P-N-C-O-R-N. Yep. And I will put all those links in the show notes. 
So, Brian, thank you very much for being on the show today. Uh, I can guarantee, I, at least in my opinion, this is one of the better shows that, that we've done because there's so much knowledge that came out of this uh, that, that everybody's going to become uh, a lot more educated now when they understand a lot of the history. And, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, we can have you on again. Uh, maybe if, if you can dig some more things out of Lexus Nexus or whatever it is that you, you find all this stuff out of, and we can, we can talk about some more of the, uh, the, the history that's happening in this world. I'd love to do it. Thanks for having me. Great. So if you want to, uh, if you like our show, please go ahead and you can find us on iTunes. You can also like us on Facebook. You can follow us at Twitter. Uh, hell, if you actually want to go ahead and write a review on iTunes about our show, that'd be awesome. We've got, we've got like almost like 15,000 plays, but nobody's even written a review about us yet. So go ahead and write us a review. We'd, we'd love to see some reviews out there. Um, if you want to suggest some people to have on the show, if you like what you hear, uh, please send us a message, the duo at bourbonpursuit.com. Uh, looking forward to the next show and we'll see you later. <laughs>